Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. For those of y'all who I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the planting pastor here at Advent, and we um, uh, have been going through a a sermon series on Genesis uh, and and actually sort of slowed down a little bit. It was originally planned to be uh, Genesis 1 through 11 that we would do this whole fall, but um, uh, as I slowed down to take uh, notice of a lot of really challenging aspects of of what God has for us, we're, we just, I decided we're going to go Genesis 1 through 4 in the fall. Um, so we're going to do a single word every single Sunday. Um, I'm, I'm joking. Um, but uh, we're coming now a little bit more to Genesis chapter 2. Um, and, and Genesis 1 and 2 are often compared and contrasted with one another, right? Where they're seemingly talking about the same creation events and they can sometimes look alike. Uh, uh, or and then they also sometimes that look like they are contradicting one another, um, right? So you know God created the land and the people and the grass and the animals, but then we look at Genesis two and God sort of takes us back to this time period that didn't quite exist in Genesis one, where there's land um, but there's no vegetation and God is about to create man. And and so we kind of don't know what to do about it. And we say, well, Genesis 2 seems to be contradicting Genesis 1. So what is going on here? Well, the best explanation that I've heard is that Genesis 1 um, is more of of a picture of the forest, right? Whereas Genesis 2 is intended to be more of a picture of a tree, Right, um, right. The, the, there's an overview versus a zooming in that is going on here. One is the uh, big picture of creation, and we talked about how it's it's not necessarily an ordering of the exact order in which it happened, but rather is an ordering that's meant to help us better understand the purpose behind why God created. And that same thing is going on here in Genesis two. Right, it's helping us to understand who man is as we close in on the creation uh, of Adam uh, in particular. And so that's what we're going to be looking at here uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. Um, And I think if you turn, if y'all have a Bible, um, we also have the pew Bibles that are kind of over there if y'all want one. Um, If you don't have a Bible... Uh, feel free to take one of these. This is a gift from us to you. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, we want um, for you all to be able to, to look at uh, the fact that not only is this just the words that you'll read up, over, up there, but this is a part of an entire story, uh, an entire love story that God has for his people. And so reading it, even just reading it out of the Bible helps to put that into context uh, for us. So if you could turn to, to page two, um, or uh, we'll I'll read it for us uh, here along the screen as well. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. 
Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided, and it became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me as we consider it together? Um, Father, we are grateful that you give us your word, that you've revealed to us um, who you are in your creation, but you also tell us who you are in your word. And so, Father, I pray, send your spirit that we might better understand um, what it is that you're teaching us about, about this world, about who you are, and about how we are to respond to you in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I've started to pay attention recently to the different advertisements that social media has for me because they're getting really good at helping me to understand just like aspects of my heart that I didn't even understand about myself. Um, So recently I've started to get a whole lot of advertisements for these home organization uh, things. Um, There's something called the Home Hearth. I don't know if y'all have been advertised this, but it's this sort of centralized uh, big screen calendar that's supposed to organize all aspects of your family and your life. And what it has revealed to me is that I have an idol of efficiency. I believe that in some element, the flourishing of my family will come the better organized, the better calendar written out, and the more beautiful it all actually is, right? That is sort of what my heart's desire and belief of flourishing actually looks like for our family, The flourishing is the word that social scientists have given to human beings um, and and to to this idea uh, of human beings being able to live to their optimal uh, performance, right? People living up to the full potential of the good life, so to speak, right? So for me, that means having the home hearth, right? Uh, Or at least that's what my my, uh, sinful heart believes. Many social psychologists say that humans need some combination of these four things in order to flourish. Positive feelings or emotions, kind of relationships, purpose, and accomplishments. Right? But as we take kind of this zoomed-in view of Genesis 2, we see that God gives us, God gives Adam, but God gives us everything that we need for flourishing. God creates a garden that's called Eden. 
And when we read the Old Testament, but particularly when we read Genesis, we need to pay attention to the names of things. Um, So the garden, we find out, is given the name Eden. And here, Scripture is telling us something about the Garden of Eden. Eden means delightful. It means pleasureful, full of opportunity for pleasure. So Eden is this delightful garden. It's this place of abundance, this place for flourishing. And the description of the garden helps to paint that exact picture, right? When we read the next few verses, often we're trying to figure out, if you're like me, we're trying to figure out, okay, now where is the Garden of Eden? Where, where might I locate it on a map uh, or the globe? But that's not exactly what these details are intended to tell us. Right? It's in the east, next to the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers with onyx, but it's less about where it actually is, and it's more helping us to pay attention, pay attention to what it actually was like, how delightful of a place it was. Right? It lists four different rivers, um, and they don't really seem to have that much to do with one another, except they were major rivers that people in that world would have all known. And they're saying they all, all of these amazing life-giving rivers begin out of this one particular garden. Right? How big and flourishing was this land that the, the water the world needs flows from it. And it says that this land has gold and onyx and bdellium. It's beautiful and useful metals that people would have wanted. So here's the point. God has placed Adam in the land where he could flourish. Right? And many of those same elements that social scientists say we need in order to have human flourishing are present here in Genesis chapter 2. Because those are going to be our three points. That God created us for work. God created us with limits. And God created us in relationship. For work, with limits, and in relationship. So God created us for work. Though the passage is primarily set in Eden, in paradise... The picture, it doesn't actually begin there, right? It it begins with this picture of a barren land. Um, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So in these early verses, creation is is not a place where chapter 1 would say that it is is good, right? Uh, It's empty. It lacks vegetation, Uh, There's been no rain. There's no one there to help cultivate it and work the ground. And God is a good storyteller, right? We're hearing about this because there's this problem, but we're about to hear the solution to that problem that, yes, it was barren, but there is a solution. The solution to this barren and unproductive land is that there is this dual creation of man that is coming and the bringing of rain, Verse 6 says that a mist came upon, uh, came up to water the ground. And in verse 7, God formed the man. And we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about that forming uh, here in a bit. But here's the point. Where there was desolate land, we now have the ingredients for there to be vegetation and life. Right? Out of nothing, God has created yet again. 
because it is this dual aspect of the reins from God and the work of cultivation from man that brings about a flourishing world. The sovereign and gracious work of God plus the work from men brings about this good vegetation. We kind of instinctively know this. Um, You know, we've been in Houston for the last three months where until last week it had not rained at all, right? And sure, we could water our lawns as much as we possibly could, but eventually if it was not going to rain, all water would have dried up and our, our grass would all begin to look exactly like the grass had begun to look next to the highway where it had even gone past yellow and sort of into that like burnt over looking brown, right? We need God's sovereign work, God's gracious and sovereign gifts in order for land to flourish, in order for this world to flourish. So God graciously gave us rain this week, right? And man was tasked with working the ground. Only as man works and God works together is there production. And make no mistake, this isn't God saying like, Guys, I need you all, right? Taylor, I really need you in order to make my world flourish. Um, That's the type of stuff that we want to believe, but it's actually far more like when we include our kids in our cooking, right? It's not that we need them. It's that we delight to show them and to work with them, right? We delight to see them grow up, and that is what God is doing here for us. Though Adam is placed in Eden... He's not there just to put up his feet and drink beer and eat popcorn and binge watch, right? Or sit by the sea and listen to Jimmy Buffett or Morgan Wallen or Chris Stapleton or somebody like that. No, verse 15 tells us that Adam was placed in the garden to work and to keep it, to cultivate and to take care of the garden. And while our passage doesn't expressly state it, I think it's assumed here that the Garden of Eden was intended to be expanded to the rest of creation. That part of what man was to do was to work alongside with God to cultivate and bring blessing upon the rest of the earth. Mankind is called not only to enjoy flourishing, but to extend flourishing. And that is part of what is in view later in Genesis, as we talked about earlier, when God tells Adam uh, that he has been called out to be a blessing, he's been blessed in order to be a blessing to the whole world, to make that a blessing, uh, to make that blessing a reality for all. And though man was created to work alongside of God, right, it's clear here that man was created for work. Though it may be obvious, uh, it's important to mention the obvious. That is, that before sin has entered the world, man was created for work. Work is not a result of the fall. As we can see here, work existed in paradise. Work existed when everything was delightful, when it was good. Work is not a result of punishment for sin. It is a blessing, even though in our sin we have tainted it and often feel as if it is not a blessing, right? Um, work is God, it is God-given. Um, it's given in paradise. 
And I know that for, for some of y'all, I think even particularly this, wa- this last week as I had uh, a lot of different uh, times to meet with y'all for coffee or lunch, um, work is drudgery for a lot of us. It is a challenge and it feels ridiculous to you that I'm like, no, it's good. It was delightful. It's all here, present before sin. Um, Because work feels consuming and it feels exhausting and it's something that we kind of bear or we do in order to afford to do the things that we really want to do, right? That, That time, the Jimmy Buffett time that I was talking about earlier. But think back to the moments when you accomplished something that filled your life with purpose and joy, right? That God given sense of accomplishment. That is God's common grace to us. That is the gift of work that he has given to us. But part of why it feels drudgerous is that we experience work in this all-consuming way without any limits upon it, right? Where work is not a good thing, but becomes an ultimate thing. And we begin to worship it, and it cannot return that type of emphasis that we place upon it. And that's why limits are important to flourishing. And that's what we see here. The second element, that God created us with limits. Though Adam is placed in the garden, and though Adam is is given a garden filled with almost everything that he could ask for, he cannot flourish if he is to operate outside of his design. Adam is given all that he could ever need, but he is not given everything. Adam is given all good things, but he, is, uh, he isn't given all things, right? Um, the point being that Adam is a creature, and as such, he is limited. And the counterintuitive part uh, to this fact is that those limits actually contribute to his flourishing here. Verse 9 says that God created every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This garden is filled with great trees that are beautiful and delicious and nutritious. This is not a utilitarian domain. Adam has everything that he needs and more. He even has beauty. As it says, there's trees here that are pleasant for the sight. But among those beautiful and bountiful trees stand two particular trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there's a lot to say about those trees and more, that I, I, more than I can say here. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about it when we come to Genesis chapter 3. Um, but we often want to know why, why is God putting them there? Like what, is, what is the whole point And to some degree, we don't know the answer because the passage doesn't expressly tell us this is God's purpose in placing the trees here. Um, But it's clear that at the very least, God is giving Adam the opportunity to choose to be obedient, to listen to him, to obey him in faith and in trust. And that is only possible when there is an opportunity and an option to trust and obey, right? And that is part of why these trees are placed here. Do you trust what I tell you is good? Will you do what I say is right? Because later in the passage, we find out what God wants for Adam to do in regards to those trees, right? He tells Adam that he may eat of every tree of the garden um, within limitation because there's a tree that is not right and good for them to eat, right? They're not to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
And this is counterintuitive to us because we often think that flourishing comes from having every opportunity available to us. The more options, the better. Right? Um, take our grocery stores, for example. Right? We think that our cereal aisle is the best way to do cereal. But I've actually heard from many people who've lived, time, lived life in other countries just how overwhelming and terrifying the American cereal aisle actually is. Right? You can get Cheerios. Then you can get Honey Nut Cheerios with frosting, with cinnamon, with uh, all sorts of other aspects. And that's just Cheerios, not to mention Tricks, Lucky Charms, Raisin Bran, Wheat Thins, etc. Not Wheat Thins, the Mini Wheats, that's the one, right? We love having as many choices as possible, as many options available to us as possible. But the paradox is that our limitless life actually makes us more dissatisfied. Having a ton of options seems like it might make us more satisfied with what we pick, but it actually does the opposite. Having more options means that we need to spend more time thinking about what we want, and it often leaves us feeling dissatisfied with the thing that we chose. Maybe because we're wishing that we had chosen differently, or maybe we're wondering, what was I missing by choosing what I chose? Right? In, our, in our family, we often talk about the challenge of the choices that are available to us when everything available is, is a good option. Um, we call that making a decision, uh, uh, or we, we call it a you may eat freely of any tree choice. Um, often the most stressful decisions are the ones where there is no wrong answer. Well, but what if I, I need to eat that tree? You know, or, or what if that tree would have made me feel a little bit happier? Um, God said that you may eat freely of every tree. And though we are limited, we are not limited in the different amounts of time that we will have to pursue all sorts of different things. Allow yourself to feel and know that freedom. But it's also a blessing from God that he gives us limitations. That he doesn't give us every single option. In our passage today, God tells Adam that there's a tree that he cannot eat from. And we bristle at that. How dare God not give us everything that we want? How dare he keep something from us? If he were loving, he would give me everything. At least that's what we think. Um, But that's not the way that it is. God gives us freedom. He gives us everything that we need for life, for food, for even for beauty. But there are limitations. If we're not created for something, it's actually loving to us to keep us away from it. Right? For example, it, it's foolish for the fish to say, it is not loving of God to keep me here in the water. I want to go upon the land. I want to be where the people are, right? I want to see them dancing. Um, you know, I want to be on land. Obviously, it is actually God's kindness for the fish to flourish in a limited place in the water, They were created for the water. They cannot live outside of the water. The limit that God is placing on Adam here is actually a protection for Adam's flourishing, for our flourishing. Just as it's not good for a fish to choose to live upon land, so it is not good for mankind to judge for themselves what is good and what is evil. We were created to be dependent upon our God in faith and in trust. 
And that means trusting our Creator to tell us and to judge for us what is good and evil and for us to respond in faith and obedience. Because that's what the tree here represents. Wanting to eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil means wanting to be able to judge for ourselves what is right and good, what is good and evil. I no longer need to listen to God because I can do it myself. Right? But God is that judge. And if we try and take his role, it is as if we are a fish, a fish trying to live upon the land. Right? It actually causes us to diminish, to become less human, less the way that we were designed, and not to flourish. So God's limits upon us, his commandments, are actually good for us. Wishing you had everything or that you could keep doing more and more and more in order to bring you that happiness is not the answer. It isn't doing more that leads to happiness. It is often in recognizing our limitations that can do so. Our creatureliness. Embracing our very finitude. Saying no to even good things because we're not created to do everything, thankfully. Right? We can let God be God. All that we have to do is be the creatures that we were intended to be, that we were created to be. Finite, limited, dependent upon him, embracing him as he offers himself to us. God's gift to Adam here in this passage is the opportunity to recognize that the knowledge of, of good and evil, right, judging what is right and what is, what is wrong is not for him. Right? It is not for us. That's God's role. So we're to give it to him. As we trust him, we begin to flourish more and more. Right? Remember, remember your childhood, right? Even if uh, you didn't have many adults in your life who were trustworthy, take a moment to find at least one that you loved and found trustworthy. Right? Remember how safe, how at peace, how rested you felt as you trusted in him or her. Right? As you leaned upon them for decisions and for boundaries. The beauty of the limits that God sets for Adam here is that we don't have to bear the weight of judging the world's actions. Holding everyone accountable to whatever standard of mor- mor- morality that we've determined is the right one. Right? Arguing with people about, uh, about and according to a sort of our own or a different standard. Right? The limit reminds us that God is our trustworthy parent or child. Or, sorry, parent or adult And we can trust him uh, to set life-giving boundaries for us, life-giving limits, and do so lovingly. And that leads us to our third point, that we are created for relationship. One part of this passage that we've not yet really focused on uh, is the actual creation of Adam. Uh, And as I said earlier, names are important in the Old Testament um, because it's here that we see the naming Uh, in creation really takes place. God is revealed by his name here. Man is revealed by his name here. And then we'll find out that Adam names the animals and we'll ultimately get to meet Eve here uh, next week as well. Right? These names are given because it's helping us to recognize the relational closeness that's happening between the creator and the creature. That God isn't a distant and absent God, but he is a knowable God with a name. 
As we read in English, we see God referred to here as Lord God. And it's easy for it to sound as if that's still kind of a distant uh, way of referring to, to God as sort of a title. All right, but the word Lord is a translation of God's covenant name revealed to Moses in, in, in Exodus. Right, it's that name Yahweh. He is knowable. He is loving. And He is near. And as we see in verse 7, it says that God takes the dust of the ground and creates Adam. And there's a little bit of wordplay that's happening here in Hebrew. Uh, one common commentator suggested it sort of sounds like in English sort of saying this, that, that God took the earth and formed the earthling and then named him earthling. Right? That's essentially what is going on here. The, the uh, Adamah uh, and, and Adam are basically, uh, Adam's name means ground is essentially the point. The description here is not intended to say that God made man from dirt, but it's more showing us that part of who man is becomes dirt upon death. From dust you came to dust you will return. So so there's this aspect of, of creation account that reminds us that man is no different than the rest of creation. Right? We're sort of drawn up from nothing. But it's that juxtaposition that is being set up for us to truly understand what God is teaching us about ourselves and our relationship with Him. Yes, you are dust, but there is a second component of what you are. And this is what Jackie was getting at earlier. For God not only creates us from the dust, but He breathes life into us. He breathes the breath of life. So on one hand, we are dust. But on another hand, we are made alive in our closeness and in our connectedness to God Almighty. Another way to say that is that on one hand, you are no different from the rest of creation. And on the other hand, you have been raised from the dust by the creator of the universe who has given you the very breath of life. He has made you in his image. And he is so close to you that you actually originate from him. I've I've never had to give someone CPR. I would imagine that there's at least a few people in this room that have. But, you know, I I have seen how close it looks in in the sandlot. Um, You know, right? Just how intimate it looks. Right? Where they are dependent upon you to put your face upon their face, to breathe for them in order to sustain them and to give them life. But that is what God is doing for us. He is knowable by name. And he is so close to his creatures and so tender toward mankind that he gives us his very breath. And so let me conclude with this. Um, Our affirmation of faith that that Jackie uh, chose for us comes from the Westminster Confession. And it began with that simple question. What is our chief purpose? What is our main purpose? Mankind's main purpose and highest purpose is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. Now, how do we do that? Well, your calling, how you work, what God has given to you and where He has placed you, all of that is an aspect of your calling if you do it in faith and in obedience. All of that is actually how you glorify and enjoy Him doing what you were created to do, extending, flourishing to others, participating in God's work of creation and ruling by being dependent upon Him in relationship with Him. As we read in John chapter 1, God's closeness is not limited to the creation account. 
God desired to come into our very world to take upon flesh and to dwell in our neighborhood, to come so very close to you and to offer himself to you, to be in relationship with you no matter what you have done and no matter, uh, no matter what you have left undone. God has come that you would not perish, but that you would have life in the full that you would flourish in him to be able to work within your creaturely limits, but in full relationship with him. That is what Jesus has offered to us in him. He has given us every opportunity for flourishing, to be the true humans that we were created to be. And he asks that we would respond in faith. So may we pray that that would be our end. Let's pray together. Father, I pray... uh, Lord, for those of us who need to be reminded um, to follow and to trust you, Lord, that you would make yourself, um, make yourself close to us by your Spirit. May we continue uh, to look to you in faith and in obedience, recognizing our own limitation and recognizing that as we try and do life apart from you, as we try um, and, and judge what is right and good, Lord, we we find that we're walking down a path toward death. But may we walk in relationship with you toward life. I pray for those of us who don't know you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would make yourself uh, real to them by your spirit. Show them Jesus Christ and just how near he has come. Help all of us uh, to love him as he has first loved us. We pray all of this in his name by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.